0: Good morning, I'm Pastor Allen. We're glad that you're here. Um, we started a series last week uh, called "Christian: It's Not What You Think." Today's topic is quitter. Uh, we're going to start a little bit different this morning, and we'll get a, little, little, a few minutes. we'll get a review of what we did last week. Uh, as always, these messages are online if you'd like to listen to them. Uh, all of us are fascinated by famous people, whether they be sports figures or movie stars or whatever. And we tend to listen or want to know their opinions or thoughts on things. We're going to look at some a famous person this morning by the name of Anne Rice. She is an author. Some of you have read her books, seen her movies. Probably her most famous one was Interview with a Vampire. I've seen the movie. Maybe you have too. Uh, she has sold almost 100 million copies of her books. That, that's just kind of mind-boggling to me because it's mostly fiction uh, But she's very successful, obviously, very wealthy, and she runs in circles of famous people that you and I don't get to associate with. But anyway, uh, she grew up in the Catholic Church, uh, and at the age of 18, she said she violently left the church and became an atheist. And she went to college, uh, developed this very successful writing career, and for 40 years, she was... An atheist. <clears throat> and she had some rough times in her life, like all of us. One of her two children died at five years of age. And uh, she dealt with this, obviously, outside her faith. But in her late 50s, um, <clears throat> something happened and, uh, to change her life. She came back to God. Uh, she came back to, to, to the church. So as a writer, she wanted to use her skills uh, and to, to support our newfound faith. So, she wrote a book, she, actually she wrote, be, began to write a trilogy about Jesus as a child. Of course, it's fiction, and uh, it was titled Christ the Lord Out of Egypt. <clears throat> She's published a second volume in that trilogy, and I don't believe the third has been published uh, yet. But in the uh, author's note of this book, she explains how she became a Jesus follower. Um <clears throat> And she is a historian. She loves history, studies history. And she was fascinated by the Jews because all those ancient religions, you know, Egypt's religions and the Baal worshipers and all those, they don't exist anymore. They're not around anymore. And, but the Jews, the, the Jewish faith has lasted for 4,000 years. And she was wondering why. And again, she's an atheist at this point. And so she began studying ancient Ju- Judaism. And she discovered what was ca- called the Jewish Wars that went on from A.D. 65 to about A.D. 70, and the, some of the Jewish people rebelled against Rome, and so the Romans came in and uh, occupied the country, or m- occupied it more more strongly. Uh, they surrounded Jerusalem, they besieged the city, and uh, they would uh, crucify people on the scaffolding around the city to try and get everybody to. To, to surrender. Finally, in 70 AD, they overtook Jerusalem, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, and it's never been rebuilt. And, and for Judaism, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. So she thought that was fascinating. She said, where can I find some more information? She was reading jo- the historian Jofe- Josephus. And so she thought, well, I probably can find find out stuff in the New Testament. That would make sense because the New Testament wasn't written for hundreds of years, right? And that's why we could have all those those fantasies in there and all those miracles and stuff because if you know, after 100 years, nobody can argue with what you wrote. So she read the New Testament. Well, she read the, the Gospels and she couldn't find anything else about the Jewish wars or the fall of Jerusalem. And that, 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 that amazed her. She couldn't understand that. She said... As important as that is, it should be in the New Testament if the New Testament was written hundreds of years after Jesus. So then she began to think, well, maybe it wasn't, didn't happen yet when the Gospels are written. And then she began to say, well, this stuff wasn't written hundreds of years later. It was only written maybe 20, 30 years later. And people were still alive, and people would have questioned it if, if it wasn't true. And then she would say, well, maybe... <laughs> This stuff is true, and she could connect it with some uh, um, intelligent evangelicals and read their stuff, and, and she became a Jesus follower, I would say, through her intellect. <clears throat> anyway, a little bit after this happened, she wrote, writes a book, basically her testimony or description of how she became a Jesus follower, and it's called "A Spiritual Confession." confession. It's through our intellect. And all of us, in some respect, have to come to, to Christ through our intellect. And she struggles with a lot of the same issues that you and I struggle with, trying to comprehend, you know, how to, you know, what happens, why do good people suffer and, and so forth. And so I'm going to take some excerpts out of this called out of darkness as she explains a little bit of her theology. And it's it's pretty fascinating. He, God, knew how and why everything happened. This was his world, all this. He had complete control of it, his justice, his mercy. We're not, it's not our justice and our mercy, and that's where we struggle. We try and make God like us. And She said, no, no, no. God's God. It's his world. He's in control. It's his justice, his mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing, that we would impose our ideas on him. And then she goes on. I didn't have to know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption or how my hard-working secular humanist friends could or would receive the power of his saving grace. She goes on. I didn't have to know why good people suffered agony and died in pain. He knew. All right? God's almighty. He knows. He understands. I don't have to understand. Then she goes on. Wow and it was his knowing that overwhelmed me wow he knows his knowing that became completely real to me and why should I remain apart from him just because I can't grasp all this and maybe you've been there at some point in your life we all know people that just because they can't understand why good people suffer that are you know God would let that happen they keep separated from God she said he could grasp it he understands God's got God's God, and I'm not. And so that's how she came to faith, just like all of you did, right? (laughs) Study in ancient Judaism. No. She came to faith, and this was about uh, year uh, 2000. And then 10 years later, she writes on her Facebook page what we're going to read next. And it's a little disturbing, or maybe greatly disturbing, (laughs) She said, today, I think it was in July of 2010, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being a part of Christianity. And and you and I are probably reading this and thinking, wait a minute, can you do that? (laughs) Is that allowed? Is that possible? She goes on. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. I, I've tried. I don't want to be part of these, this, this quarreling, not getting along, etc., etc. In fact, she goes on and says, uh, for 10 years I've tried. So it wasn't like she tried a little bit and then said, eh, this is not for me. She tried, and she tried for 10 years, actually 11 years. She tried. And she said, I failed. I just couldn't do it. I'm an outsider. My conscience won't allow nothing else. Uh, My thinking, my understanding of God doesn't fit with this quarrelsome group. Now, if you and I are reading that, we're a little confused. We kind of understand because we all struggle with, you know, why don't church, you know why are so many different kinds of churches, and why don't Christians get along, and so forth. But we probably haven't uh, given up on the church. Now I know some of you gave up in church for maybe not forty years, but maybe ten years, twenty years, or whatever, for some of the same struggles, for some of the same reasons. Now I lo- love this next part. My conversion. From a pessimistic atheist lost in a world that I didn't understand. So that's how she described herself and people like her for those 40 years. She was a pessimist and lost and didn't understand the world around her. Now she's an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by loving God. And she says, this is crucial to me. I'm an optimistic. I'm a believer. There's a loving God, and He's in control, and He's sustaining all this. That's, I think most of us would, could relate to that. But then she goes on. But following Christ doesn't mean following His followers. Well, yes and no. I mean, from my perspective, not following them when they're not following Jesus, but following them when they are following Jesus. That's part of a problem with her theology from my perspective. She goes on. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity. Always will be, no matter what Christianity is, has been or might become. And, and Christianity has, has had its ups and downs over the years. What she's referring to as Christianity. Obviously Christ is more important than Christianity. I, I think we could agree with her there. So after she wrote all this stuff, She gets all these emails from people. And of course, a lot of them telling her she's wrong. And of course, a lot of them telling her, hey, I feel exactly the same way. So she's continued this dialogue on her Facebook page. And she later wrote this. My commitment to Christ remains at the heart and center of my life. And some of us reading what she wrote said, hey, you know, Christ is not the center of your church because the church isn't. So we would question that. But she said, my heart is the center of my life. Transformation in him is radical and ongoing. And that sounds like a true conversion to me. But she is also a quitter. She's an outsider to what we would call or generally considered Christianity. And she goes on. That I feel now that I am called to be an outsider for him to step away from the words Christian or Christianity is something that my conscience demands of me. She said, I just couldn't do it anymore. Now, if we read her words, listen to those words. Uh, makes us a little uncomfortable. Makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, I kind of like to be challenged sometimes. Uh, and I'm challenging you. I got some good pushback from the first service this morning. But we kind of understand, don't we? We understand some of what she's saying. And some of you have adult children that feel exactly that same way. The millennials, which are adult, most of our adult kids are, are leaving the church in grows. They don't go to church. Now, some of it's for, for other reasons. I would say wrong reasons, but some of it's for the same reasons that uh, Ann shares. <clears throat> now, as a, a, a Jesus follower and support of the church, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I don't want millennials to abandon Christianity, or we're going to relabel it. Some of you left because you were disappointed. What they taught you in Sunday school as a kid just didn't seem to be true. You know, all things work together for good. Well, my life hasn't been good. Bad things have happened to me. You know, it just didn't fit. And she found that she, by leaving, being an outsider, she actually had become an insider. This whole group of people that are trying to become, are are claiming they are Jesus followers, with separating themselves from what we call Christianity. So, as we talked about last week, this term Christian, the problem with this term Christian, can we get that up? Is that it's not defined in the Bible. So consequently, it can be anything you want it to be. It only appears three times in the Bible. All three times it refers outsiders, a label they gave to these people, Jesus followers, followers of the way. It was a derogatory term like geek or redneck but these terms have kind of caught on and now there's this geek squad that can come and fix your computer and and some people are proud to be called geeks or or rednecks. Well, eventually the label Christian became something of of, of honor. That's why we have Christians, quote unquote, on both sides of every issue. Political issue: There's Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, both sides of every financial issue. Some are financially liberal, financially conservative. Social issues: Abortion, uh, issues like uh, the death penalty. Both sides of those issues. Uh, any issue you can think of, there are Christians on both sides. How can that be? Well, because there isn't a definition of Christian. Two predominantly Christian countries can go to war with each other. Uh, wars can be fought like the, in the Middle Ages, the, uh, in the name of, uh, of Christ. I got to think about this. I can't imagine Jesus with a gun in his hand, can you? I, I just can't. So, so how can Christians do that? <clears throat> how can Christians be on both sides of the Civil Rights Movement? How can Christians be on both sides of the slavery issue uh, 150 years ago? because it's not defined in Scripture. So last week we looked at the New Testament and we said, okay, if Christians, what we call Christians, didn't call themselves Christians, what did they call themselves? Or what did Jesus call them? And we came up with a whole different word. It was this word, disciple. Now this is a little more difficult. In fact, it's a little more scary because this word is defined. We know what it means. We know what it is to be one. We know what it is not to be one. In fact, we gave you a definition. It means somebody's a learner, a pupil, apprentice, a follower, an adherent. So, as an apprentice to Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, I want to do what he did, right? <laughs> he, I'm learning from him. <clears throat> uh, the answer is always yes. It's not debatable. Or I'll do it if I want to, because that's kind of what Christians are. Is you know, I'll do what I want to. But disciple. I, I don't have any options. The answer is always yes. Jesus, yes. And so we looked at something Jesus said. At last time he was talking to his disciples. Back up, please. (laughs) Back up. The last time he got with his disciples, he said, you know, I want to leave you with what's most important. I'm leaving. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. You know, and there's not 10, don't worry about the 10 commandments. He said, don't worry about the 611 Jewish commandments. In fact, I'm going to give you the 612th, and it's more important than all the other 611. In fact, you can forget all the others. Just remember this. All right, now we can put it up there. And he told his disciples this. Your love for one another will prove, this is the proof, to the world, people out there, that you're my disciples, and not just Christians. Disciples. Well, isn't it about what we believe. Jesus, he said, no, no, no. It's not about what you believe. People can't see what you believe. It's about your love, the way you treat one another. Of course, he's talking to eleven disciples. He's saying, hey, it's the way you, Matthew, you treat John. John, how you treat Peter, etc. This is most important. This is the proof that you are one of my followers. You're uh, a, a, a disciple. That's a lot harder than Christian, isn't it? You know, I, can, you know, I can be Christian by believing certain things. I can be Christian by just coming to church. I can be Christian by putting some money in the offering. I can be Christian by even helping it out at this table or going for this, on this walk uh, on, on Saturday. But being a disciple, that's a whole different thing. That's a lot harder. It's a lot scarier. And we came with this conclusion last week. Jesus was saying, we, the church, need to create a community of people defined by unconditional, compassionate, ridiculous love. That's it. That should define us. That should describe us. That should be our proof. Unconditional. I'm going to love you no matter what. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, you cannot make me stop loving you. Compassionate. Love for the unloved. And ridiculous, because basically it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Logically, we wouldn't do that. Logically, people don't do that. Logically, I don't want to do that. Now, the problem when we talk about love is it's such a confusing term. And it also seems to be such a almost passive thing. It seems to be like almost a feminine thing. No, I'm not trying to insult you ladies. Uh, And you see pictures of Jesus as this kind of this meek, uh, loving person. So I wanted to clarify something, and I think this statement does it the best. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, like, "you love for one another proved that you're my disciples. If you want to understand what Je- Jesus meant by what he said, watch what Jesus did. So at 33 years of age, younger than a lot of us, at 33 years of age, Jesus marches into Jerusalem. And most of us believe he knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to be tortured and suffer and be crucified and die. But he still did it. In fact, he did it knowing uh, and seeing, not just hearing, but experiencing rotting corpses on Roman crosses. His parents probably, when he was a kid, trying to shield his his, his eyes from him. He could smell the rotting corpses. This was something real to him. He might have even seen it happen. It wasn't something, you know, intellectual. Knowing this, he still marched into the jaws of death. Knowing that he was going to be railroaded, that, you know, people are going to lie about him. He wasn't going to have a fair jury trial. Uh, knowing all that, he marched into the jaws of death. And for those of us that may think that love is a little effeminate, maybe we need to man up a little bit and have the courage that Jesus had. Anyway, years go by. Something like 55 years go by. And we're going to look at something John wrote, uh, like we did last week. John's the last remaining disciple, the first 12. All the others have died. Paul has died. Paul has probably had cut off. Matthew might have been crucified. We think Peter might have been crucified upside down. All the other disciples have died. He's lived through the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem being destroyed and hundreds of, maybe thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people being murdered and executed and and, uh, et cetera. He's seen the church persecuted. He's seen the church scattered. Now he's an old man. John's an old man, 80, 90 years of age. Last one left, and he's going to write something. And so, like Jesus, this is kind of the last thing he's going to get to say. What's he going to say? He's going to change the message. What, what is John going to tell us uh, with his last writings? You look at what's called 1 John. He says, dear friends, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, other Jesus followers. Let us continue. The message changed. <laughs> 55 years later, is the message changed? Message hadn't changed. Continue to love one another. Why? Tell us, John, why? For love comes from God. But John, John, look what's happened the last 55 years. Doesn't seem to be working. You know, the church is persecuted, and scattered. It's not really, you know, prospering. There's no temple anymore or places to worship. John, are you trying to tell me to do this? It doesn't seem to be working. Goes on. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. This is, the, this is how we know. <laughs> child of God you love. That's it. In fact, he tells you next verse, or the opposite. But if anyone who does not love, does not know God. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know this preacher. He's a great preacher, man. He really helps me understand the Bible. But he's really not a very nice person. John was saying, no. He's not a God. I had a Sunday school teacher teaching my kids or taught me and she was a great Sunday school teacher but nobody liked her. John was saying, no, she's not a God. If I was to ask you what is God like, some of you grow up in church, would use some of those O words. Remember those O words? Omnipotent. Omniscient, you know, knows everything. Omnipotent, all-powerful. Uh, you might use some, wor- some other, other words, words we sing in some of these songs to describe God. John says, no. (laughs) How do you describe God? Something, if you were at school as a, church as a preschooler, might be the first thing they taught you. God is love. Not God is loving. God is love. He's embodiment of love. He cannot do anything else but love. What is love? It's not some gooey, gushy feeling, which is nice to have. (laughs) That's not what it is. Love is a decision. It's a commitment to do what is best for those that you love. And that's the only way, and as we're going to read here, that Jesus would go to a cross and die. In fact, sometimes in our culture, we kind of reverse it. We said, love is God. What we worship is love, this feeling of, of doing what makes us feel good. That's just the opposite of true love because that is selfish, that is self-centered. True love is what's best uh, for the other. So then he goes on, God showed how much he loved He didn't just say he loved us, he showed us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. That sounds familiar. That sounds like the verse I learned as a kid. And what is it? John 3. Oh yeah, that same John. Someone wrote that. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son who believes in him should not perish, but has everlasting life. So it helps us understand a little bit why God would send Jesus. Because he loves us. He doesn't want to be separated from us. And also why we have freedom of choice. Because love uh, to be of value must have a choice. To not love. And then he goes on this is real love, not fake love or we say is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Love requires a sacrifice. Now, who is this us? This is this hour. This is every person you and I come in contact with could be your mother-in-law. I have a great mother-in-law. Maybe you don't, (laughs) okay? Uh, It could be uh, a salesperson. It could be a telemarketer on the telephone. It could be somebody cuts you off in traffic. It could be your doctor. It could be anybody. Anybody you and I come in contact with, anybody we know is a person that Jesus, God loves and Jesus died for. Does this mean that God lets sin slide? No, that's why Jesus had to die. The cost had to be paid, a great cost. The cost of love. And so he goes on, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. And that's the word ought. It's really important. It's a debtor term. It's like, you know, like me, you have a mortgage on your house. The bank paid for your house, so now you need to pay the bank back, right? (laughs) You owe the bank uh, for your mortgage. And so God says... John's writing here, since God loved us that much, I owe it to God to love God, but more importantly, I owe it to God to love you, and I owe it to you to love you, and you owe it to me to love me, since God loved us so much. It's not payback to God. We can't pay back God. God's God. He he has everything. He he does it. It's not for God. It's for us. And he goes on. No one, follow the logic, no one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Okay. God is love, but I can't see God, so how am I going to see love? And, And God is saying, we see love... In the way we treat each other, this ridiculous love—that the only explanation, explanation, explanation—that word—is that it's God. Goes on. We know how much God loves us. No problem. No doubts. We know, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love. The key is trust. I trust my wife. I love my wife. She loves me. I can trust her. You, I may not. I don't, you know, I don't have that trust level with you. But deep love requires trust, doesn't it? Then one of my first favorite verses in the Bible is this next verse. Such love has no fear. There's so much fear in the world. And if you don't like the word fear, use the word worry. Do you worry? Worry is fear. Anytime I start to get that way, I, I quote this verse to myself. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. I have no need to be afraid because God loves perfectly. Perfect love expels all fear. So a new new movie came out called Captive and it's about a true story about, probably seems like a long time ago now, maybe 10 years ago, where this guy took this woman captive and she started reading the purpose-driven life to him and his life was transformed. We're going to pick it up where she quotes this verse the book does
1: fear is a self-imposed prison that will keep you from becoming what god intends for you to be you must move against it with weapons of faith and love the bible says well-formed love banishes fear job said my life drags by day after hopeless day and i give up i'm tired of living leave me alone my life makes no sense The greatest tragedy is not death, but life without purpose. We were made to have meaning. A young man in his 20s wrote, I feel like a failure because I'm struggling to become something and I don't even know what it is. All I know how to do is to get by. Someday, if I discover my purpose, I'll feel I'm beginning to live. When life has meaning, you can bear almost anything. Without it, nothing is bearable.
0: When I heard I had a son I had to break out I don't belong in that place When I saw what they were trying to do to me How that judge was trying to enslave me I went into that courtroom And I shot him dead You know what? You felt good. If I were the one who killed your husband, could you forgive me?
1: I don't know. maybe
0: God can. God can. Obviously. But that's a fear we have. People have. Well, God forgive me. And that's what this great love covers. So we love each other because he loved us first. God took the initiative. We none of the love there would be no love without God. God took the initiative and so we could... Understand it, experience it so that we can love others. Then follow the logic here as he finishes up. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. That's pretty blunt, right? You can say whatever you want, the proof's in your actions. And if you're not a loving person, you say you love God, you're lying. If we don't love people we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? This is the test. All right? You can't love people you can see. How can you love this God you cannot see? And Then he finishes up by restating. And he has given us this commandment. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers or family. You know, our families may squabble, but you know, we still love each other, right? And that's what the church should be. So when Anne says she quit, I don't think she quit this. In fact, I know she didn't quit this from what she wrote. She just quit the quarreling thing. And there's a bad theology there. And she's, you know, we talk about community is so important. Uh, But some of your friends, maybe some of your kids, they've quit too. Because the church hadn't been the church. We have not loved like God has loved us. And I challenged you last week, imagine what it would look like if you and I did that. Even for a week or for a month or to the end of the year. And I think the people around us would feel this way. They would feel not coerced. We were not try to force people to change or force people to look like us. They also would feel, but on the other hand, they'd feel drawn. See, love is drawing, isn't it? It's appealing. They also would probably feel guilty, not because we try to make them feel guilty, but because they see love that they don't have. They see us treat people better than they treat people. See us have a more positive, optimistic attitude than they do. Uh, be at more peace. But they also would not feel condemned. That's not our job. Isn't that how you came to Christ? Those of you who were Christ followers, if you're not one here this morning, we're glad you're here. But If you're a Christ follower, how did you come? Did you, weren't you drawn? You weren't coerced? So we can discuss lots of things disagree about lots of things but we need to be <laughs> settled on this one thing. And John would say the church has lost its leverage. It turned the world upside down in the first century it didn't have buildings, it didn't have money, it didn't have political power, but it had love. And when you give up love, and love isn't the most important thing, then the church loses its influence. And it's lost its influence in our culture today, hasn't it? And that's part of the big reason. Go back to our Summary statement. If you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said or what John said here, watch what Jesus did. What would that look like? Us husbands loving our wives, like Christ loves us. Factors of versus says we should do that. Vice versa, and loving our neighbors and loving our kids. Let's decide, no matter what else, no matter what else we might struggle with, that this is going to be our proof. And this will be the best opportunity for you and I to have influence, impact. God can use us to change other people's lives. Sorry, I went over a little bit this morning. We'll pick this up again next week. Hopefully you'll join us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. We thank you for discipleship, not just Christianity. We thank you for this ridiculous, unconditional, compassionate love and that we can show to others, not because we can naturally, but because we're supernaturally empowered by your Spirit. I pray for anyone. God is not a Jesus follower at this point, and maybe part of their struggle is like Ann's with, with the church not being very Christ like. God, help us to be those kind of disciples, not just Christian.